Turn, if you would, this morning to the Word of God, to the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 6. You'll find that on page 1096, Luke 6. And I'll read the verses 12 through 19. Luke 6, beginning at verse 12. In these days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. Thus far the reading of God's Word. The Lord Jesus, as you know, has been given the nations for his inheritance. Not simply would the nation of Israel bend the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, But kings and queens from all over the world would acknowledge him as Lord. In fact, our Lord was encouraged by his heavenly Father before he came uh, to his mission in the Old Testament, at least in Isaiah's gospel, that for Jesus to die for the redemption just of Israel would be too small a thing for him. He has been given to be a light for all the nations. And so while our Lord Jesus is here ministering to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, he has in his mind's eye the worldwide expansion of the gospel and the building up of the church that would include all nations and all peoples, so that here, while he himself is preaching, he is looking forward to that day when the gospel will be preached in his name to all nations. And so what we have here in Luke 6 is a very significant phase of Jesus' ministry. It is now, he is now looking towards the expansion of his ministry after his own impending death and the gospel's advance throughout the world after he has gone to be at the right hand of the Father upon the successful completion of his own ministry. So this is an important time in the life of the church, not only for Jesus and for his ministry, but also for us. Because if this passage of Scripture were not here, then the gospel would not have come to us who are non-Jews, and we would still be in our sins, which is quite a frightening thought if you give it some attention. So the first thing I want to notice is the setting of this passage, and that comes to us in verse 12. 
that our Lord Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. The first thing that I want to note that marks the significance of this event is that Jesus went out to the mountain to pray. If you know biblical history at all, you know that mountains are very significant places of encounters with God. And so the Garden of Eden was built on a mountain by the Lord. After the flood, uh, the ark of Noah rested on Mount Ararat. And when the Lord, with his mighty arm, brought the people of Israel out of Egypt, he brought them to Mount Sinai. And on Mount Sinai, the Lord came down and spoke to his people. And you can see the importance of mountains in the ministry of Elijah. Um, It was on Mount Carmel that God gave this mighty display of his power and awesome might it was on Mount Carmel, that the, the, or Mount Horeb, rather, that the Lord spoke uh, to Elijah after that great event on Carmel. And so this fact that Jesus goes to the mountain to pray highlights for us that this is a significant thing. This marks a step forward in God's plan in faithfulness to his promise to Abraham in God's plan to bring blessings to the nations. And then notice that on this mountain, our Lord Jesus prays. In fact, all night he continued in prayer to God. At least that's the way most translations translate it. All night he continued in prayer to God. But the Greek actually says, all night he continued in prayer of God. I don't know the significance of it, and I wasn't able to be helped by anyone else either. But that's the way it says. But the important thing is that Jesus spent the whole night in prayer with his heavenly Father. Now, you might think that's particularly odd that he would do so. After all, when Jesus came to earth and took upon himself humanity, he didn't cease to be God. He was as God as he was from all eternity, when he was a little child in Mary's womb. And he was God when he was being nursed, and he was God when he grew up, and he was God when he carried out his ministry. So why does Jesus need to pray? If he is God, as he is, why does he need to pray? Well, we can say a number of things about it, but one of the things that we want to say is that Jesus ministered while he was on earth according to both natures, his divine and his human nature. And in his human nature, our Lord Jesus sought the help and blessing of the heavenly Father upon his labors. Similarly, as our Lord Jesus was empowered by the Holy Spirit, Remember at his baptism, the Spirit came upon him so that, as John says, the Spirit was given to him without measure. And that Spirit ministered and empowered and enabled Jesus to carry out his work of the ministry so that Jesus was dependent in his humanity on the blessing of God. And so he prays. But we shouldn't think simply of prayer as something utilitarian. You pray because you want God to give you something or because you need his blessing. That's undoubtedly true that we should pray in those situations. But Jesus also craved fellowship with his heavenly Father. 
And prayer is a means of fellowship as we pour out our hearts to the Lord. Our Lord Jesus has just gone through a very difficult uh, patch in His ministry where there's a great deal of opposition and accusation trying to trap Him and to uh, get a hold of Him and to undermine His ministry as the religious leaders attack the Lord Jesus. And so what He needs is to be reassured, to be comforted, to be strengthened by fellowship with His heavenly Father. And so our Lord Jesus prays on the mountain, and all night He continues in prayer. But there's something else that I think it's important to highlight here, and that is that prayer is necessary, is the first work of gospel expansion. See, what is on our Lord's mind is that the gospel would be preached to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. And for the nations to be converted, for dead hearts to be brought to life, for those in darkness to see the light, for those in the bondage of Satan to come to the liberty of God, that is a work that is beyond human ability. If humans could do it, then there would be no need for Jesus to pray or for anyone else to pray for that matter. But because the work of bending the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ is quite out with human ability, that is, it is is impossible for humans to change their own hearts so that they might bend the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ because it is a supernatural work of grace. Well, then we must pray for that. And our Lord Jesus understood that. For the gospel to go to the nations, for religions to be turned upside down, for nations to be liberated from bondage to sin and Satan, Only God could do that, and therefore Jesus prays. And it is something that the early church picked up on from the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. You can read through the book of Acts, and the book of Acts chronicles, written by Luke, of course, the book of Acts chronicles the growth of the church, how nations and cities were turned upside down, how emperors trembled before the Lord and His ambassadors, how cities were were transformed by the preaching of the gospel. That's what the, the book of Acts is. The ascended Christ from on high is working by His Spirit through His church and, and bringing people to life and liberty in the gospel of the resurrected Christ. But it's also Acts, and Luke Acts, for instance, for in particular. It's also Acts that chronicles the prayers of the church. In fact, Luke, who's the same author as the author of Acts, Luke has more prayers in his Gospels than the other Gospels. Because Luke was so convinced that it was not mere coincidence that the church prayed and that the church grew. He was convinced that the church grew precisely because the church prayed, that we need to seek the face of God to come down in power and to change hearts and to do what only God can do for the salvation of sinners. I was thinking of that in connection with Vacation Bible School in the next few weeks, and we're grateful that uh, 
The door hangers have been distributed. At least we trust they have. They're no longer on the table. And we're thankful for the teachers who prepare. And we're thankful for the the well-programmed proceedings. And we're thankful for those who give of their time and efforts to make these props so, so beautifully done. And we can work hard, and we must work hard, and we want to gather a crowd, and we want children to come. But what we really want, what, is, what would make a really successful vacation Bible school is if young children who have no knowledge of God or of His Son, Jesus Christ, would confess the Lord Jesus and would trust in Him as their Savior. God can do that, you know. It's not beyond His ability to do that. It's beyond our ability to do that. And it would be a successful vacation Bible school if some of the neighbors of families in our neighborhoods would be introduced to the Lord Jesus Christ and would come to join us to worship the glorious name of our Savior. That would make a successful vacation Bible school. But we need more than props and more than door hangers, and and we need more than a nice program. We need the Spirit of the Sovereign God to come down upon us. We need God to make bare His arm and to stretch out His mighty hand. And God does that when His people pray. So we need to gather for prayer. We need to pray in public worship. We need to pray in our homes. We need to pray personally that God would do a great work and magnify His own name and glorify His Son, Jesus Christ, and save sinners from hell that they might know the joy and blessing and happiness and delight of being members of Christ's body. So that's what's happening. Jesus goes to a mountain to meet with God, and while there, He prays. Now, what is the event that Jesus is so concerned about that demands his energies and his sleeplessness to pray? Well, it is the the gospel going out to the nations generally, but in particular, it is the choice of men whom God is going to use to bring the gospel to the nations. So, this is a pivotal point in the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the life of the church. These men are going to be chosen as apostles to bring the good news of Christ to those who are spiritually dead. And so Jesus calls all his disciples to them, to him on the mountain, and then chooses from them twelve. Now I want to camp out here for just a few moments and, and notice a number of things about this group that Jesus chose. The first thing I want to notice is that Jesus initiates the call to apostleship. It's not that these men said, hey, Jesus, I think I hanker after being an apostle. Do you mind if I apply? Now, you might think that's pretty strange to put it that way, but that's actually the way it did with other rabbis. If if you wanted to be a scholar of a certain rabbi, then you would apply to the rabbi that he would choose you and ask that he would choose you. It's much like, like our teenagers. When they want to go to a particular university, they make the application to go there. And so if there was a rabbi whose reputation you particularly enjoyed or whose learning 
and teaching abilities you really honored, you would make application to the rabbi to become one of his disciples. But that's not the way that Jesus operates. In fact, in Mark's gospel, there's a fellow who wants to volunteer to be one of Jesus' disciples, and Jesus sends him home. No, Jesus takes the initiative here. He's the one who calls the disciples to himself, and then from them chooses twelve. And of course, what Jesus does with his crew of disciples, that's what God does in salvation as well. That there's not a one of us who would come to know Christ and bend the knee and embrace him as Savior unless God had first taken the first step in our lives. Our hearts are so hard and calloused and hardened and rebellious and dark, and our thinking is so futile that Jesus Christ and his claims on us mean absolutely nothing until God takes the initiative, until he changes our hearts, renews our will, opens our eyes, unplugs our deaf ears so that we hear the voice of Christ, so that we see him in all his glory, and so that we bow before him in worship. God takes the initiative both in salvation and in the choice of his apostolic band. Jesus would later say in John's gospel, you did not choose me, but I chose you to bear fruit. So that's the first thing. Jesus takes the initiative. Secondly, Jesus is sovereign over whom he chooses. You can see this in verse 13, and when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve. He didn't choose all of them to be part of his apostolic band, but he took the prerogative and chose some of all of his disciples to be the apostles. He is sovereign. There's no coercion. No one forces him to choose Simon and not Benjamin, another one of his disciples. Jesus sovereignly chooses. And again, that's the way it works in salvation. It's not that God is coerced or forced to choose some and not others. No, he makes that decision all on his own, according to his own sovereign good pleasure. Election is unconditional. It doesn't depend on on anything that humans can offer or have the potential to offer. It's God who sovereignly chooses. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 9, God says he will have mercy on those whom he will have mercy, and he will have compassion on those on whom he will have compassion. No one forces God's hand. His electing love, his choosing grace is completely sovereign and completely free, and it should be completely astonishing to us that God has had mercy upon us and has chose us from before, the, from before the foundation of the world. It's not that we applied. It's not that we had any potential. It's just because he loved us. How is that even possible to wrap your mind around the sheer sovereign grace of God? So Jesus takes the initiative. Jesus chooses these 12 out of all of his disciples, and he chooses 12. How many members are there in the Canadian Parliament? You don't know, do you? How many members are there in the Legislative Assembly in Alberta? I imagine 
You don't know that either. I didn't either before I looked it up. There are 338, if you're interested in Canadian Parliament, 87 in uh, the Alberta legislature. But you do know how many apostles he had. And the reason you know that is because you know how many tribes there were in Israel. Twelve. Twelve tribes and twelve apostles. You might seem like that's just a handy number for Jesus to have, but it's actually more significant than that. Because what Jesus is doing here is he's recommissioning his church for its mission among the nations. You might think that mission work is only a New Testament phenomenon, but that's not true. God had established the nation of Israel to be a light to all the nations. That was one of the reasons why God placed Israel in the land of Canaan, in Palestine, because that was such a significant trade route, and so that the nations would travel through Israel, see the blessing of living under the favor of God and in covenant with Him, and would long to be a part of that nation. That was God's design. But Israel was disobedient. They were recalcitrant. Instead of uh, recommending their God to the nations, they embraced the gods of the nations and and jettisoned their own God. They, They weren't what they ought to have been. And now God is reconstituting His church to be a witness to the nations of the greatness and glory of God. And that's why He chooses 12. This is the new Israel reconstituted, recommissioned for the magnification of the name of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then notice the men that he chose. First, they're very diverse. There is, I mean, you you can't get more diverse than this. There's Matthew, who was the tax collector. And then there was Judas, who was called the zealot, who is a tax hater. So you have a tax collector, someone who sympathized with the Romans and collected taxes for them, and you have someone who hated the Romans and hated their taxes. And Jesus brings both of these men into his apostolic band. Well, that's the way the church is. We're not all the same, and we shouldn't all be the same. There's different, different ethnicities and nationalities, different social status. There's, there's the wealthy, there's the poor, there's the needy, there's the middle class. There are different uh, sexes. There's male and there's female in the church of Jesus Christ. There's people with different in, interests and idiosyncrasies. We're not all the same. Thankfully, we're not all the same. We're, we're unique. And he puts all of these people together into one body. And he says, love one another, welcome one another, even as God has welcomed us in our Lord Jesus Christ, and love one another. In fact, one of the ways the world will know that you are my disciples is by the love that you have for one another. That's what the church is. People from all different strata, different experiences, different backgrounds, and he melts them together into one body with each part of the body playing a significant part for the blessing of the whole and for the glory of God. So that the Apostle Paul can say, in the church of Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, male or female, slave or free, for we are all one in Jesus Christ. It's a diverse group that Jesus calls together. 
And there's nothing really that special about this group. Just look at some of the names. There's Simon, whom, who, who would later deny the Lord Jesus Christ. There's uh, James and John, who would call down judgment upon a city that did not receive uh, the Lord Jesus. There's Bartholomew. He's only ever mentioned in the Bible. We're not told that he ever contributes to anything in the apostolic band. There's Matthew, who was a tax collector. There's Thomas, who would later doubt the Lord Jesus. And there's Judas, the son of James, who some people think his other name is Thaddeus, but, and uh, he actually did write one of the letters, uh, the letter of Jude. There's, there's Simon, who's on the fringe because he's a sympathizer with those who hated the Romans. None of these men are scholars, it appears. Some of them are just fishermen, unlearned, as we uh, learn elsewhere in the book of Acts. And none of them appear to be particularly wealthy or significant. But that's the way the Lord builds His church. Not through great people, but through ordinary people. Through the unnamed and the unknown. Those are the ones that the Lord Jesus uses to build His church. And He does that deliberately so that the glory and honor would go to Him alone. Remember what the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This is so encouraging. You don't have to be someone. You don't even have to be particularly gifted in order to contribute to the worldwide mission of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't have to be great. You don't have to be learned. You don't have to be wealthy. You can just be a nobody. No one knows your name. You can be unnamed and unknown. And that's the people the Lord particularly loves to use for His own purposes and for the glory of his name. Now, of course, he sometimes does use learned men. There was probably no one more learned than the Apostle Paul, and we're thankful for, for great men and women in the church, stellar examples of godliness, of people who are very learned and able to express themselves with clarity. Thankfully, the Lord has given his church those as well. But don't you think that because you're not like that, he can't use you? He can you might be a seven-year-old girl or a nine-year-old boy, and you might think that you're nobody important, but the Lord Jesus loves you, and He loves to use you for His own glory. To invite someone to church, to pray for your neighbors that they would become Christians, to, to witness to your coworkers. It doesn't take great gifts, great talent, great skill. It just takes people who are willing to be used by the Lord Jesus for his own glory. So the men, they're diverse. They're not special. It's a motley crew, really. I mean, if you were hoping to make an impact on the world, it wouldn't be these men that you would choose. And then there's Judas Iscariot. 
the one who would become a traitor. It's sobering to see his name here. And maybe it's surprising. I mean, didn't Jesus know that he was going to betray him? Yep, he did. He would have known that, of course, from the Old Testament, from the book of Psalms, where the servant of the Lord would had, have someone who, who would share his bread rise up against him. So he knew. And did he pray all night to his father? He did. And yet Judas is part of the apostolic band. What do we make of that? Well, the first thing we, we say is that uh, God is able to use reprobates, wicked men, those who oppose his church, he's able to use them for his own church's blessing and for the glory of his own name. As the Puritans used to say, God can draw a straight line from a crooked stick. That's encouraging, and he has throughout the history of the church. There have been ministers of the gospel who were ignorant of the Lord Jesus Christ, who didn't really know Jesus as their personal Savior, but because they opened up his word, the Lord used them for his own purposes. There have been men who have been ministers and who have had great success, people coming to know the Lord through their ministry, and then later they apostatize and leave the faith. But, but the Lord used them for his own glory because he doesn't depend on human ability. He's bigger than that. He's not limited by human limitations. He can draw a straight line, even with crooked sticks. And so Judas Iscariot was part of the apostolic band of the Lord Jesus. But there's another lesson to be learned here, and that's a more sobering lesson. And that is that proximity to Jesus doesn't mean that you're actually saved. Judas would spend time with the Lord Jesus, would be ministered to by the Lord, would hear the preaching of the Lord Jesus, would eat with him, would be the recipient of his kindness. Judas, no one had privileges like Judas had privileges. And yet Judas became a traitor. It's possible to grow up in the church. It's possible even to be an elder in the church. It's possible to be a minister of the gospel, to be a missionary in the church of Jesus Christ, and then to become a traitor. I trust you pray that the Lord would keep you, that he would protect you, that he would bless you, that he would spare you from all of the wicked intentions of Satan as he seeks to divorce you from the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, we sing it sometimes, don't we? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Don't you just shudder when you think of what it would be like to deny Christ? Men have done it before. Women have as well. And we need to be praying that the Lord would keep us, that he would make his face to shine upon us and be gracious to us, that he would protect us. That, that if we're not Christians, that he would save us. 
And if we are, that he would keep us. It's a sobering thing that Judas was part of the apostolic band that the Lord Jesus chose. And so here are the men that Jesus chooses. And notice in verse 13 that he names them apostles. Apostles simply mean that they're sent. That is, that they minister in the name of the king. They minister as ambassadors. They have no message of their own. They can only speak what they've been given to speak. These are the men that the Lord Jesus has chose for the worldwide expansion of the gospel, the preaching of the good news to the nations. This is really the church that Christ chose because the church is the missionary agent of God. The apostles were for a time until the end of the apostolic period, but then the church was committed with that great commission to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. And these are the kinds of people the Lord Jesus uses from his ascended throne to bring glory to his name. And what a privilege it is to be a part of that church and to participate in the missionary calling to make Christ known where he is not known. And then we read in verses 17 through 19, that Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and so to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. Do you notice anything peculiar about these verses? Jesus has just chosen these 12. They have come down the mountain with him, verse 17. And then you don't hear about them anymore. It's almost like uh, they're non-players. In fact, you only hear about these 12 a number of chapters later in chapter 9 when Jesus sends them out. But right here, it's like it never happened. It's like Jesus wasn't up all night praying to the Father. It wasn't like Jesus chose these 12. For all intents and purposes, you could have left out verses 13 through 16, and the story would not have been changed at all. In 17 through 19, though Jesus has chosen these 12, in 17 through 19, the focus is all on Jesus. The great multitude from Judea and Jerusalem, seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. They came to hear Jesus. And those who were cured with unclean spirits, or those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. Those who had diseases were healed. And they were healed by Jesus, because power came out from him and healed them all. But of course, that's the way it has to be, isn't it? That Christ might have his apostolic band to carry out the work of the ministry. But it is really all about Jesus. And that Christ has gathered his church and he has commissioned his church to go out to the nations. But it's not the church that's important. It's not the men and women and boys and girls who give their lives for the gospel that's important. It's not the apostles who are important. It's the Lord Jesus who is important. 
I think that's Luke's point. Yes, you have these 12. They are going to be significant figures. Some of them are going to write scriptures. But the focus always in the ministry of the church is on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when the preaching of the gospel is heard here at Trinity or in Suriname, South America, or in Vietnam, or in South Sudan, wherever the gospel is preached, wherever the Word of God is proclaimed, it's the Lord Jesus who is actually speaking. Church, the individuals, they can be interchanged. No one significant, nothing really important, but it's the voice of the Lord Jesus that people hear. I heard the voice of Jesus say, come unto me and rest. Well, he's at the right hand of the Father now. Yes, he is. That's why he has sent his church, because in his humanity, the Lord Jesus can't be everywhere. And so the voice of the Lord Jesus is heard through his church among the nations. And the whole goal of ministry is not to draw attention to the apostolic band, nor to draw attention to the church but it's to draw attention to the Lord Jesus. I mean, I'm sure you've been uh, uh, where people have prayed that that the Holy Spirit would touch their hearts. That's that's good because, remember, God takes initiative, and the Holy Spirit must change our hearts before we would ever come to know the Lord Jesus. But notice this, all the crowd sought to touch Him. That's our prayer. that people, our neighbors, our co-workers, our family members, that they would seek to touch Jesus because it's Jesus who has all the power. It is the Lord Jesus Christ in his crucified and resurrected glory who has the ability to turn back the ravages of sin that plague humanity and bring them into the blessings of the gospel that he has procured by his precious blood. So yes, it's important to be missionaries and evangelists. It's important to pray. But never should the glory be taken from Christ and given to us. And it's Christ in all of his magnificence that we hold before people and invite them to come to him and to touch him so that his power might transform their lives. It's a really a great ministry that we've been called to, of proclaiming the Lord Jesus Christ and to be used by him to bring sinners to salvation. May God give us grace to do so. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our God, what a wonderful Savior we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, one who is full of grace, full of compassion, and full of power, able to do exactly what we need to have done for us to bring us to salvation. And we thank you for the privilege of being called as the church and given that great commission to make his name known among the nations. And help us to be faithful in our way as we pray, as we give, as we witness to our neighbors, as we seek the blessing of those around us. And may we be careful to bring all the glory to the Lord Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.